From WHQR Public Media, this is The Newsroom. I'm Ben Schachman. Thanks for joining us. On today's show, we're sharing some incredible reporting by Dana Miller-Irvin, an investigative reporter at WFAE, that's our fellow public media station, in Charlotte. Back in 2021, Dana got the idea for a series after talking to a relative about a little-known situation. Defendants in criminal court who are what's known as incapable to proceed. These are people who have cognitive or mental health issues that make them constitutionally unsound to stand trial. So when the judge asks them, do you understand the charges against you? They cannot honestly say yes. On paper, the law deals with incapacity pretty simply. If a defendant is ruled incapable to proceed, the state has 24 hours to get them to a hospital bed, usually at a state-run facility. There, patients get a kind of mental health triage, but also some basic education on what will happen in court. Restoring capacity can mean everything from medication to speaking with a mental health expert to watching episodes of Matlock. Yes, Matlock. More on that later. Now, the patient is still a defendant, and they still have to have their day in court, for better or worse. But the plan is to get them back to court with the capacity to understand what's happening. And then they can take part in a competent constitutional defense, just like anyone else. Except in case after case after case, that doesn't happen in 24 hours. In hundreds of cases, it takes months, even a year or more. As Dana started making phone calls, this became clear. As the project developed, WFAE partnered with PBS's Frontline, which provided crucial support in a number of ways, including assistance to help collect and crunch data from across the state. Meanwhile, Dana went on to speak to dozens and then over a hundred people. Lawyers, jailers, sheriffs, judges, doctors, social workers, officials, lawmakers, family members, and academics. The people Dana talked to told her similar stories, and the data backed them up. As the investigation continued, an overarching story emerged. North Carolina's criminal justice system has real problems, and so does the state's mental health system. But where the two overlap, those problems compound each other to something far worse. And that's where people fall through the cracks. Thus, the series name, Fractured. As Dana told me, that's where people get stuck. Their mental health deteriorates, sometimes irreparably. At a certain point, they're released, but in worse shape and often with what support system they once had in tatters or gone completely. The cycle is vicious. Dana told me some people don't just fall through the cracks, they get crushed. Eventually, Dana would go on to speak with some of these very people and their families to hear directly about what that's like. That, she said, was the most important reporting she was able to do in this series. On today's show, we're going to bring you some of that reporting parts one and two of what is, for now, scheduled to be a 10-part series from WFAE and Frontline. Later in the show, we'll sit down with Dana to talk more about how she started this project, what's been most striking about it for her, and what else the series might be looking at. First up, part one, about the weight that defendants with mental health issues endure because they're not well enough to stand trial. It's the story of a man named John. Okay, here's WFAE's Sarah D'Elia and Gwendolyn Glenn introducing the series and the first episode, with Dana Miller-Irvin handling the main narration. I'm Sarah D'Elia. 
and I'm Gwendolyn Glenn. You've probably heard a lot about our country's mental health crisis. Crisis also describes North Carolina's mental health system. It is harder to access mental health care here than most other states, and that affects everyone, particularly the most vulnerable like inmates who are too sick to stand trial. They often wait months in custody for the treatment they need just so they can get well enough to go to court. As of last month, there were 201 inmates in North Carolina waiting for a state hospital bed. Crisis describes those who cycle in and out of jail serving, as one public defender put it, a life sentence, 30 days at a time. Nine in ten North Carolina jails have no psychiatrist on site, Most offer less than two minutes of psychiatric telemedicine per inmate per week. And crisis describes those who get better in jail, but get little or no follow-up when they leave and end up back behind bars. These are stories of incredible suffering, often hidden. To bring them to light, WFAE got support from the PBS series Frontline. We conducted a year-long investigation that involved more than 100 interviews. We talked with inmates, their families, lawyers, sheriffs, state officials, and mental health experts. We also gathered data contacting every courthouse and most jails in North Carolina to build an original database. We wanted to know... How long do inmates wait for treatment before they're well enough to stand trial? Our investigation found that half of North Carolina's inmates who are incapable to stand trial wait longer than 300 days before they get a bed in a state psychiatric hospital. Behind all those numbers is a real person, real families. Over the next several weeks, WFAE will tell some of those stories. Our series is called Fractured. Today, WFAE's Dana Miller-Irvin begins the series with a story about an inmate who's been in custody awaiting trial almost five years, getting sicker as he waits. Eric Witherspoon is leaving the Mecklenburg Detention Center. He came here one day last June to visit his 32-year-old stepson, John. John's been in custody since 2018 on charges of arson and attempted murder, but he's never been tried. I'm pretty angry. He, he's been gone four years, and they still haven't got a trial for him. You know, they, I can't understand it. I can't put my, my hands around it. John's attorney says he's been waiting because a court found he didn't have the mental capacity to understand the charges against him or assist in his own defense. The legal term is incapable to proceed. That means he's incapable of standing trial under the U.S. Constitution. So John needs to go to a state psychiatric hospital so he can get well enough to go to court. It's called having his capacity restored. That typically involves medication and classes about the court system, so defendants are able to go to court. Sometimes it even involves watching clips of courtroom dramas like Matlock. We the jury find the defendant not guilty. John's been waiting more than a year for a bed. It's the third time he faced a wait since he was arrested. He's been locked up in the system so long, and uh, I don't understand why they don't have a bed for him. Witherspoon can't see John because his stepson's in isolation, in a disciplinary unit. His attorney says he's getting worse while he waits. John's been charged with spitting and throwing feces at guards. A North Carolina study found that kind of behavior is typical of someone who's mentally ill and isolated. And, and they told you he's in the DDU, the disciplinary unit. Uh, yes. did, what did he tell you why? 
he said, for throwing stuff on the officer. Uh, it seemed like they would try to get him more help instead of lock them up, keep them isolated. That's just going to make his problems worse. WFAE isn't using John's full name to protect his identity. He's been cycling between the hospital and the jail since his arrest. The system is so messed up, I don't understand that, how you can put somebody that needs mental care, you can lock them up. There are 201 inmates waiting for one of North Carolina's 894 state psychiatric beds so they can be restored to go to trial, according to the North Carolina Department of Health and Human Services. But the state doesn't track how long incapable to proceed inmates wait in custody for a bed once they're arrested. WFAE and Frontline wanted to find out. We contacted North Carolina's 100 courthouses and most of its jails, and we got responses for 63% of the state. We got lists of the defendants who were incompetent to stand trial, then asked when they were incarcerated and when they got a bed. We found half of those accused of felonies waited in custody for more than 313 days for a bed. The longest waits are in the western part of the state, where John is. There, half wait more than 363 days. Part of the problem is that North Carolina has fewer state psychiatric beds per population than most other states. We rank 39th in the country, according to the Treatment Advocacy Center. And Dr. Carrie Brown, chief psychiatrist for the state's three psychiatric hospitals, says only two-thirds of the beds are operating. That's because the state can't find enough hospital staff, thanks to pandemic-era staffing shortages and inadequate salaries. We've lost um, a you know, significant percentage of our workforce. That impacts the number of beds we can operate. John is stuck in the fracture between North Carolina's legal and mental health systems. We don't know his exact diagnosis. That's privileged information. But the law says only people who have a mental illness or, quote, mental defect, like an intellectual disability, can be found incapable to proceed. And John's attorney says his client needs the medication, therapy, and services that only a hospital can provide. John doesn't understand the process that's enveloped his life. He's angry, but he's helpless to do anything about it. We tried to talk with John seven times over the course of several months. We met up with his attorney, Jason St. Aubin, and we went to the jail. Each time, John refused to meet his attorney, but St. Aubin, along with John's stepfather and public records, helped us piece together parts of his story. Here's what we know. On June 30th, 2018, a fire broke out at a Charlotte home for intellectually disabled adults where John was living. Police arrested John for arson and attempted murder. A judge denied WFAE's request to see the body cam footage of his arrest. Earlier in the day, he had had a disagreement, my client, with the folks at the house. That's Jason St. Aubin, John's attorney. I believe it was over access to video games. He was upset and started, uh, allegedly, a small fire that became a larger one. No one was injured, but the smoke damage was extensive. John was taken to jail and denied bond. St. Aubin worried that John was too sick to understand his legal situation or help with his own defense. An evaluator and a judge agreed. So John was sent to Broughton Psychiatric Hospital for restoration, but he was kicked out for attacking staff. My client operates on the cognitive functional level of a child. 
Um, all the tests show that, all of his behavior shows that. He has no coping mechanisms or ways to process these kind of emotions or thoughts. Seven months later, John was allowed to return to Broughton. This time he did well. After four months of medication and education about the legal system, evaluators said he was ready for trial. But by then, it was September 2020, and more than two years had gone by since John's arrest. The pandemic was raging. Court schedules slowed, and jails quarantined inmates to contain the virus's spread. John was isolated. The American College of Correctional Physicians warns prolonged isolation can worsen mental illness. So by the time I was able to actually go and see him, several months had passed. And in those several months, he had already stopped taking his medication. You could see visually how he has become disheveled. Um, his hair is unkempt. His stare is more vacant. Doctors say people with severe mental illness frequently refuse medication. North Carolina jails will only force it with a court order. And that rarely happens. John's alleged aggressive behavior towards jail staff has resulted in 10 felony charges. If he's prosecuted for those, he could get more than 18 years added to his sentence, St. Aubin says. John was in such bad shape, a psychologist again found he was incapable to proceed to trial. But St. Aubin doesn't fault the jail. He says officers aren't supposed to be mental health care providers. They said that he had ripped up his uniform. They can't bring him out because he's not able to um, be clothed. So we were told that they would try to put him in a new uniform, but they didn't sound too optimistic, to be honest. Sometimes John wouldn't respond, as a deputy explained to St. Aubin during one visit. He come out when he decided he wanted to lay back down on his bunk, and he's not responding at this point to any of our verbal commands. Yeah, I understand that. That's what happened last time when we were here, too. We'll probably be repeating this process just a couple more times to see if there's one day where, you know, he is in a better mood. Yeah, because, you know, he's been in there for four years now, and, and I haven't really talked to him how to, because of how, you know, you know how he is. So I appreciate it. We, we, we tried our best to get him. To I know get him. We got him a new jumpsuit and everything to be able to place, place on it. Yeah, I know you, you all have been very helpful and communicated very well with me every time this has occurred, so I appreciate that. Yes, sir. Um, so we'll, we'll probably just try again in a few days, and, and I really appreciate your communication and your hard work on that. Apologize for the Oh, no, thank you. Yes, sir. It's not uncommon for people to relapse after they've been restored. Although the state doesn't track the number of people who get worse again after being restored, a 2017 state working group found anecdotal evidence that it's relatively common. Tony Frasca was a psychiatrist at Broughton Hospital in 2015. Well, on more than one occasion, I saw the same people, mostly men, mostly black men, okay, but not exclusively, okay, come back to Broughton um, in as bad or worse a shape as I met them the first time. And that was incredibly disheartening. In 2019, black people made up 44% of North Carolina's jail population, doubled their numbers in the general population, according to the Vera Institute. We'll report more on how poor people and people of color are often hit hardest later in this series. Frasca has never met John, and he doesn't know the specifics of his case, but he says restoring someone a second time may not be as easy for patients who suffer from some mental illnesses. Every time they get sick, they get sicker. Um, and every time that you try to bring them back, they don't get quite back to where they were the last time. They lose ground. 
The law requires those who are incapable to proceed to be admitted to a restoration program within 24 hours. But there aren't enough beds, says attorney Beth Guzman. She now represents patients, but she represented the hospital on behalf of the state for over a decade. While working there, she came up with a fix. What we came up with several years ago was to ask the prosecutor to have the judge write pending bed availability on that order. It's a get around for that 24-hour requirement. Carrie Brown, the chief psychiatrist for the state psychiatric hospitals, says Medicaid expansion will mean more people will be able to get care before they get so sick they need a hospital. The department is also trying to reduce wait times by providing restoration services for some inmates while they're still in jail or out on bond. Why should you have to only go to the state psychiatric hospital to get capacity restoration services? Why can't you get some capacity restoration services while you're in the detention center? So far, North Carolina has only one in-jail restoration pilot project. It's for 10 inmates at a time, people who are willing to take medication and who get along with others. John's been too sick for that. He needed to go back to the state hospital. Attorney Beth Guzman says hospital staff try to coordinate with attorneys so restored inmates can get a trial soon after they return to jail. But they still can't always prevent them from deteriorating. If you've got somebody who is charged with murder, who goes back, and there's still a lot of work to be done on their charges, sometimes their, their trial is set way out, several months away, and they can decompensate and come back to us. And they can act out as they get worse. Smearing feces, throwing feces, throwing urine, washing their clothing in the toilet, attacking staff. Anybody can see that. The system don't care. They're going to keep somebody with mental illness locked up in a jail cell, and they keep doing stuff, uh, threatening guards and stuff. That lets you know that he needs mental evaluation. After waiting over a year, John finally got a hospital bed in January. WFAE hoped to visit John there, but St. Albans says John still isn't healthy enough to speak with visitors, not even his lawyer. He's still stuck in the system. That was WFAE reporter Dana Miller-Irvin with the first installment of the series Fractured. We've got to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with more from the series. And later in the show, we'll speak with Dana about her reporting. I'm Ben Schockman. You're listening to The Newsroom. Stay with us. Welcome back to the newsroom. From WHQR, I'm Ben Schockman. Thanks for joining us. Earlier on today's program, we heard the first installment of Fractured, a series from our colleagues at WFAE produced with support from PBS's Frontline. Spearheaded by journalist Dana Miller-Irvin, Fractured is a year-long investigation into the state's criminal and mental health systems and the tragic failures that occur when those two overlap. Later in the show, we'll speak with Dana about her reporting, but first, part two of the series about a vicious cycle that some call serving a life sentence on the installment plan. Here's WFAE's Marshall Terry introducing the story with Dana picking up the main narration. For those living with mental illness, the chances of being homeless are high. A federal survey in 2015 found one in four homeless people suffer from mental illness. Once homeless, they're more likely to end up behind bars. 
going to jail can start a downward spiral. Many lose jobs or benefits, even health care. Some cycle between jail and the streets for years, often for minor crimes. Last week, WFAE, with support from the PBS series Frontline, examined the problem of inmates who wait in custody for months because they're too sick to stand trial. This week, we focus on inmates who serve what many in the court system call a life sentence on the installment plan. It's a symptom of our fractured legal and health care systems. And as WFAE's Dana Miller-Irvin reports, that's what's happening to Miguel Maldonado. We first met him last August. Like many stories in this series, this one is hard to hear. We grappled with how to tell it and how to do so with respect. WFAE feels it's important for you, the listener, to hear from Mr. Maldonado and others who were stuck in the fracture. We tried unsuccessfully to reach his family. When we first met Maldonado, he didn't have an attorney. He had waived his right to one. When he later requested an attorney, WFAE consulted with Gaston County Public Defender Stuart Higdon to ensure that we told this story accurately and with as much sensitivity as possible. Miguel Maldonado says he lives on the streets of Gastonia, but I meet him in jail. He was picked up for indecent exposure on July 25th. I meet him a few weeks later. He's barefoot, wearing an oversized orange jail jumpsuit that's draped loosely over his shoulders. It's barely buttoned to his hips, so his chest is showing. He objects when a guard tells him to button up. Button up a couple of those buttons. I stopped moving. Yeah. Yeah, but you still got to button those buttons. That hurt my bones. Maldonado is convinced the jumpsuit is too small. He says it hurts his bones. But the jumpsuit is hanging off him. His booking sheet says he's only 5'8 and 145 pounds. Court records show Maldonado's been cycling in and out of jail here for almost two decades. He's 40 years old, and he's been charged with 92 separate offenses in the past 10 years. All are nonviolent crimes. 73 are for second-degree trespass, one of the lowest-level misdemeanors. You come here a lot, right? Yeah, yeah, because I I don't have uh, my bones uh, in the right place, but uh, that's because when I come to jail for trespassing, they don't give me uh, my size. This is too little. I'm a big boy, and... uh, I just can't uh, fix my body because I forget my, my mind with the unity this little, yeah. There is a, uh, a phrase in the legal circle, you know, some people do life sentences and some people do life sentences 30 days at a time. Stuart Higdon heads the Gaston County Public Defender's Office. He wanted us to meet Maldonado. Maldonado is well known among the attorneys in Higdon's office. He's a regular client because of his mental health, Higdon says. Maldonado keeps getting arrested because he goes back to places where he's been arrested before for trespassing, like a local 7-Eleven where he stole two candy eggs, and a McDonald's where he was previously banned. It's not if he comes back to jail, but when, says the jail's administrator, Becky Cawthron. Mr. Maldonado is very famous to all our detention officers. We all know him. There are a lot of people that become... Uh, I would say almost like family, like they're at the house when they come here. In October, a judge found that Maldonado didn't have the mental capacity to understand the charges against him or assist in his own defense. That meant he was incapable to stand trial. We don't know his exact diagnosis, that's privileged information, but the law says only those with a mental illness or, quote, mental defect, like an intellectual disability, can be found incapable. But Maldonado says he doesn't have mental health problems. 
I'm okay. I just need to, to have uh, the right clothes and the, the right shoes. After he was found incapable to proceed, the district attorney dismissed his charges, and Maldonado went back to the streets. That happens a lot. North Carolina law says that those who are incapable to proceed have to be restored to competency so they can stand trial. But the wait times for a bed in a state psychiatric hospital are long. WFAE's investigation found that, in Maldonado's part of the state, half of those charged with felonies wait more than 363 days for a state hospital bed so they can be restored. Most of Maldonado's charges are for misdemeanors, and the longest sentence for second-degree trespass is only 20 days. Since you can't be held longer than the maximum sentence, prosecutors frequently dismiss the charges. It's a revolving door for a lot of these people with mental health issues. They're coming here, returning, uh, committing crimes that are, that are small misdemeanors like criminal trespassing, uh, begging. Some, like Maldonado, end up back on the streets. Older court records show his last known home address is a shelter that shut down years ago. But recent ones show Streets of Gastonia as his address. Maldonado says his family has a house in Chicago. But there's no room for him. A lot of his family members have given up on him because they are um, a nuisance to them and they can't get him the help they need. Cawthron says the jail has tried to get him help in the state mental hospital, but the wait was too long. Maldonado had to be released from jail when his sentence was up, before he could get a bed. The jail even contacted his mother at one point when he was being released, Cawthron says, but he refused to go with her when she came to pick him up. Every county in North Carolina works with a local managed care organization, whose duties include managing care for people struggling with mental illnesses. In Gastonia, Partners Health Management is the organization. Partners sent WFAE an email saying that it offers former inmates help with mental health counseling, psychiatric care, housing referrals, even diversion programs designed to get people charged with low-level drug crimes into treatment. But it doesn't track inmates when they leave jail. North Carolina's Department of Health and Human Services would like to see more diversion programs. It's currently piloting them in 13 counties, but not in Gaston County and it hopes the legislature will agree to fund more with Medicaid expansion monies. Four. Three people waiting? Okay. Cawthorn estimates that more than half of the inmates at the Gaston Jail have mental health issues. That's consistent with a national survey performed a decade ago that found that nearly 45% of jail inmates had a mental health diagnosis. A study in New York showed that those with severe mental illness, like schizophrenia or bipolar disease, are more likely to be arrested for minor crimes like trespassing than those without the diagnosis. They're also more likely to end up behind bars. Stuart Higdon says public defenders see that a lot. People who are suffering uh, psychiatric illness, wandering about in front of a store, yelling, and the immediate response is to call the police. That first arrest can start a downward cycle from which the mentally ill struggle to recover, Higdon says. After 30 days in jail, inmates start to lose some Social Security benefits and Medicaid. If they're on food stamps, they're at risk of losing them after 30 days, too. Figuring out how to reinstate those benefits when released can be especially challenging for those already struggling with mental health problems. If they were housed, becoming unhoused, they can get separated from medication. They can uh, lose their support network. So a lot of times these people 
when they're finally getting out, they're having to go back to square one. The result is a permanent underclass of disadvantaged mentally ill, Higdon says, cycling in and out of jails. University of North Carolina Medical School professor Dr. David Rosen says mental health care in North Carolina jails is inadequate. In a yet-to-be-published survey, he found that 90% of North Carolina jails have no psychiatric providers on site. Three-quarters rely on telehealth for mental health care, but those jails typically offer about three hours a week for every 100 inmates they house. If 40% need care, they'd get less than five minutes a week. Really, nearly all of the jails say that they have access to providers, but when you actually look at the number and the uh, hours that the providers are actually spending on site, it's really quite small. With a clinical social worker on site for mental health needs, Gaston's jail offers more care than most. But Chief Cawthron says all too often, inmates who improve don't get care when they leave. It's a continuous circle going on and on with, with no answers, with no end in sight for these people that are coming in with mental health issues. Maldonado is still cycling. He was back in jail twice in November, twice in December, and back again a few weeks ago. That was part two of Fractured, an investigative series from WFAE and PBS's Frontline looking at the failures of the state's criminal justice and mental health systems, and the stories of the people who are caught between the two. Okay, we've got to take a quick break, but when we come back, we'll sit down with reporter Dana Miller-Irvin to talk about her work on this series. You're listening to The Newsroom. Stay with us. I'm Ben Schachman. Thanks for being with us today. We've been listening to the first two installments of Fractured, an in-depth investigation from WFAE that looks at the troubling and sometimes tragic failures where the state's mental health system meets its criminal justice system, and the people who get caught in between. With us now is Dana Miller-Irvin, the reporter who has been driving this project with support from WFAE and PBS's Frontline. Dana started out as a researcher for Nightline and made her way to 60 Minutes, then CNBC, spent some time as a congressional reporter, and is now working for WFAE. Dana, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. So I wanted to ask, just here at the top, how did you get involved and interested in this massive reporting project? I had just done a series of stories on healthcare in America and nothing on mental health, so I wanted to do something on mental health. And uh, I happened to be here in Morganton, which is the home of Broughton, one of the three state hospitals. And so when someone, a a relative of mine inside the court uh, system said I should look at inmate mental health, I found it a lot of people wanted to talk to me. And this project really looks at two massive systems. You've got North Carolina's criminal justice system and North Carolina's mental health system. And they... Well, neither one is working as intended, it seems. They both have cracks in them. And then the problem is that there's no connection between the two. And so that's why we call the series Fractured, because it really is 
a fracture and people just call it fall into that fracture and sadly are crushed. So once you got interested in this, how did this partnership with uh, PBS's Frontline? So I came up with the series. WFAE liked it. Frontline had been talking to WFAE about doing something together. Uh, Frontline has a, a local journalism partnership. WFAE sent Frontline my proposal and they loved it. And I have to tell you, they've been amazing. The Frontline my frontline editor has been just amazing when she 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 liked the stories but when she heard the first the idea for the first story about someone who's waits for a very long time in fact he's he's been in the um in, uh, either incarcerated or in a hospital but in custody for five years without getting a trial and so the when she heard that story one of the ideas she had was uh, to get data, and they actually funded an amazing team. Um, we have someone at Frontline who is a data journalist. We have a database person at NPR, and uh, they supported a position at WFAE to do collect data collection. So without that, I don't think the series would have been what it is. It really paints, in one case, literally, there's um, on one of the stories, which we'll have links to there's a map of North Carolina where you can look at the basically the wait time to for for people who are too mentally ill to, to stand trial can you talk a little bit about this this is um, you know early on in this in this series we're talking about capacity to stand trial what, what is that right. under the US Constitution you have to be able to understand the charges against you and assist in your own defense and if you can't you're not capable of standing trial and Nothing can go forward. No procedures can proceedings can go forward. So uh, what happens is if people who have serious mental health problems, when they get incarcerated, if they're found incapable to stand trial, they have to go and get their capacity restored. Now, up until very, very recently, the only place you could get restored was in a state psychiatric hospital. Very recently, North Carolina Department of Health and Human Services has started to pilot some in jail and in community restoration uh, projects, but those are those are few and far between as of, as of this time. So waits for state hospital beds, especially during COVID, are quite lengthy. And this gentleman that we portray in story one actually has waited over a year for a bed the second time. What what happens to a person? There there's no room at a mental facility. They can't stand trial. Where are they physically at this point? People who are charged with felonies and who can't be out on bail are incarcerated. If it's a misdemeanor, if someone's charged with a misdemeanor, what will happen with them most likely is they'll reach, they'll be in custody for the maximum sentence. And then by law, they have to be released and they'll be released. And as you hear in story two, there's one guy who just cycles in and out of jail and what the public defender called the life site a life sentence on the installment plan um he's had upwards of 80 charges over the last decade and this is the gentleman uh identified as miguel in the the second piece miguel maldonado yeah and you're dealing with people's criminal records the allegations you're dealing with people's mental health these folks are pre-trial so i just didn't ask them anything about the crime and if i uh, because I can't be asking questions that will later affect their liberty, right? 
that was a just a, a no-brainer. Um, as for the mental health, so there are, of course, mental health records, like all health, health records are privileged, but people can only be incapable to stay on trial if they are either mentally ill or they have what the law considers to be a mental defect. And that's something like a severe intellectual disability. And so by virtue of the fact that they're incapable to proceed, we know that something's going on, right? And what I would do in all those cases is then get off the record confirmation uh, when, whenever possible that I wasn't making a mistake. So back to this idea and this, this powerful quote of life on the installment plan, this cycle of people who are, they are arrested, they are detainees at a local jail, there's this backlog, and I guess you said it's the maximum sentence for a misdemeanor. When that time runs up, the prosecutors sort of have to drop the charges and we start all over again. That's pretty much it. I want to explain what restoration is. Restoration uh, is, it does involve some level of treatment, right? Because you're you're getting medication if you need it. Maybe you're getting some kind of therapy. But it's not what you and I think of as therapy in the sense of, oh, we're getting you well and off you go, right? Restoration is targeted to make someone capable to stand trial. So in most cases, a very large percentage of it is really education about the court system. And uh, uh, people will sit in the state hospital and watch clips from Matlock and my cousin Biddy and learn this is a bailiff and this is the judge and this is what happens when you plead guilty. So restoration overlaps with treatment, but it's not really treatment. Gotcha. You have to be well enough to stand trial in theory. That's right. (laughs) That little detail from the second installment that people might actually be watching Matlock as a legitimate educational exercise is a testament to Matlock. (laughs) Or my cousin Fiddy, for that matter. That's one of my favorite movies. (laughs) One of the other things you report on is people, you know, losing their benefits and, you know, things like food stamps and stuff. What what does that look like? Well, a public defender who speaks in that piece really talks about it quite eloquently because what happens is if they have any kind of supports, they're likely to lose them. Uh, family might get upset and leave them. Uh, if they had employment, they'll certainly lose it if they're in jail for 30 days and so forth and so on. Uh, you know, if they're in j- they're jail for 30 days, they could, or more, they could lose food stamps. They can lose social security. If they had Medicaid, they can lose it. If they had a cell phone, they may not have it when they get out, right? And so you're releasing someone to the outside who's in worse shape often than when you're pick- when he's picked up for the first time. And so what Stuart Higdon, the public defender, says is we create this permanent underclass of disadvantaged people. And it's tragic. And if this underclass of people, as you put it, have pre-existing, say, mental health issues. Yeah. Exactly. Right. I mean, people who have a physical disability and apply for disability will find they it's very confusing and they need to go to a lawyer. Well, imagine if you have mental health issues and you're trying to figure out how to apply for disability or social security. Do you get the sense that like maybe they could have pled to a lower charge or maybe had the case dismissed like and not had to spend as much time? There is there is data that uh, people with mental health inmates with mental health problems spend more time in jail than people without mental health problems. I guess that's what I'm asking. I, I guess is you know, what is the human cost of this system not working the way it's supposed to? 
Yeah, and the human cost. So I think story one is a very good example of the human cost. We we, you know, I spent a very long time trying to talk to John, who is in the Mecklenburg was in the Mecklenburg Detention Center and then now in Broughton Hospital. And the guy waited over a year without medication, as far as I can tell, in isolation for some or all of that time. And he's now it's it's now taking them some time to get him restored. And and I think there will be a story later in the series about John. It's proving to be a very difficult time with him the second time around. I did talk to a doctor, uh, formerly of Broughton, who talked about the fact that with some people, uh, and he was talking specifically about people who suffered from schizophrenia, it's harder to get them back a second time. It's harder to get them. Um, and, and, and when you do get them back, maybe you don't get them all the way back. And that's a, a human cost of extraordinary proportions. Yeah, devastating in some cases. Okay, so you looked across the state at courts. Did you get a sense of how common things like pre-court diversion was? So rather than arrest someone, you say, hey, the police officer's trained, and he says, hey, this person doesn't even really belong in jail. They need help. So let me take them to a crisis center and get them help. There are also mental health courts, and those courts sort of that's a we we have looked at that a little bit and those courts do um help people avoid a record if they uh see the judge regularly and and stay off of drugs and do whatever they're told to do to to get better stay on their medication and so forth and so on the other sort of part of this is that you actually were looking at one of the detention centers that actually had probably better than average services inside the facility in terms of mental health. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, that was that was sort of astonishing. Um, The in urban areas, you're more likely to have well-funded health care than you are in rural areas. But what we found and we we unearthed a, a yet to be published survey by a University of North Carolina biostatistician and medical doctor about the amount of health care that's routinely available in jails. And it's not much. 76% of jails have telehealth for mental health care. And that amounts to about three hours per 100 inmates per week. So if 40% of those inmates need mental health care, which is about right, um, that's about what national data would indicate, then that's less than five minutes per week. And it's, I, I know that there have been many studies touting the benefits of, of telehealth, but it just from a lay perspective, seems like five minutes a week would not be moving the needle on these issues. Well, I'm, and I'm not sure if it matters whether it's telehealth or in-person health. Telehealth has been shown to be very effective, but less than five minutes a week is, is, is less than five minutes a week. It's, you're not going to get much done. Yeah, that was, that was a really striking and strikingly low number. So it, it is kind of bracing to see exactly what this looks like for someone like John, for example, who's, like you said, f- fallen through the cracks in two overlapping systems, and the kind of person like McGuell, who is just now in what seems like an unbreakable cycle. I'm, I'm curious where else 
you think this reporting will be going? Because I know the series has legs. It's up and running. And uh, right. I'm curious what's next. I know you have some in the can and some you're still working on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, w- there will be 10, well, there were originally planned to be 10 stories. I suspect there might be more now. Um, and uh, I won't tell too much, but I mean, I, I well, let me put it this way. I will, more than more than one of my stories, you know, because I'm following people over time. And more than one of my stories, I saw people really descend into the abyss by the end of the story. And it was very, very troubling and very hard. I mean, you've gotten to know some of these people and some of their their stories. I think one of the things that the introduction of this series puts forward is this idea that we're almost dealing with a doubly marginalized community where there's very little public visibility for people in the in the world of the criminal justice system and very little visibility for people struggling with mental health and so you you add those things together and who who can see these people's plight and one of the things that was really 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 important to me was to get to those people um to to hear the stories from themselves it's one thing to hear a policy won't talk about it it's one thing to hear me talk about it. It's another thing to hear their voices and from their families. It It's just, it's a whole different level of understanding. And, and that was very important to me. I will say this though, I, you asked where this series was going and I'm sort of, there is also plenty of policy in here. So it's not just uh, stories about individuals. There's There's gonna be plenty of policy, how we got here, uh, what it means for people who aren't in the criminal justice system, uh, the problems with our healthcare system, what it means for you and me, or just people who are out in the community. And and we do look at, at the end of it, we look at some solutions too. I hope that people will, will look forward to that part of it because it's, I mean, it's damning reporting, but I hope that maybe some of the response will be, you know, increased engagement. You've done the work. Now other people have to pick up the ball and run with it. Well, I hope that people will... Uh, pay attention to some of the solutions that come up later on in the uh, reporting because there there are some solutions out there. Well, I won't ask you to give too much more away. Um, I am I am curious in general, sort of what the feedback has been like so far. Uh, I know it's it's early days, but there's two pieces out by the time we've recorded this. I'm curious what you've heard. Yeah. So. You know, I'm a longtime investigative reporter. I was at 60 Minutes in an earlier life. And I'm really used to people coming back to me and going, you know, I, I really liked your piece, but I really liked your piece, but I really have a bone to pick with you here. That has not yet happened to me, which is sort of astonishing. And no matter which walk of life people are from, whether it's law enforcement or um, healthcare, or it's astonishing that people come out. I've been coming to me and saying, "I'm so glad you did this." I'm sure the criticisms, are, the criticisms are yet to come, but but that's been astonishing. Yeah, I mean, I think most investigative reporters like you press publish and then you just wait. <laughs> for, right. Um, but I think you know that this is at least so far has been presented in a way where I can't imagine a reader or a listener you know, looking at this reporting and thinking there isn't a problem here. So my hat is off to you. Well, thank you very much. 
Um, well, before I let you go, anything else you would want to say about you know reporting this series or you know where you hope it goes or what you, what do you hope it does? Hmm, that's the kind of question I ask, and I hate those questions. Um, I think it took a lot of courage for a lot of people to come forward, and I hope that this series does not disappoint them. But some people, uh, one of the things when I started to make calls about this that was really striking was people inside the healthcare or criminal justice system who said to me, you know, I'm close enough to retirement and I'm angry enough, I'm just gonna talk. And I hope people do not get in trouble for talking to me, but I hope if they do that it was worth it. I think that's a good place to leave it. Uh, well, Dana, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me. All right. Well, that's all the time we have for this edition of The Newsroom. Thanks to our guest, Dana Miller-Irvin. Thanks as well to WFAE and PBS's Frontline for supporting this reporting and sharing it with us here at WHQR. You can find the ongoing Fractured series at WFAE.org. And you can also find that, along with other quality reporting from our fellow public media stations around the state, at WHQR.org. Just head to our homepage and scroll down to the state news section. Thanks also to our WHQR technical team, Ken Campbell, Jonathan Furnell, and Megan McDevitt. If you missed part of today's program, you can find it at whqr.org. You can also find it as a podcast, pretty much everywhere you can find podcasts. If you have thoughts or comments about today's program or ideas for a future show, email us at newsroom at whqr.org. I'm Ben Schockman. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us for the next edition of The Newsroom.